1: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com.
0: Welcome to a summertime podcast sitting here with co-host and podcast show producer Jeff. Welcome Jeff. Hey, what's happening? Uh, not much. Winding down, getting ready to have my birthday here in about a week. Congrats! Thank you very little. Thank you very little. What are we doing for it? Is that is that Chevy Chase line? What what is that from? Fletch. Fletch. Let's see if we can pull up the video for that. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do for it. Hide in a dark closet. Avoid. No, I I love birthdays. Listeners, if you want to send us send me a birthday present, feel free. Are you willing to reveal what you're turning? We've gotten quite a few pre- <laughs> weird presents so far from listeners. Deflection. We've gotten smoked salmon, <laughs> ice wine, Jeff got a bottle of tequila, which he promptly took home, no, didn't share with anyone. We haven't received enough. Margarita Friday we need. Uh, yeah, so we're wedging this. We're doing a Q&A radio show in between... We had a fun one with Axel Merck, and then we have uh, a really exciting one coming up with Dr. William Bernstein, who, if you have questions, please send them in. He's um, one of the oft-requested uh, podcast show guests, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you have any, we're looking forward to it. be out next week.
1: Cool. Well, why don't we dive in with uh, some tweets that you made over the last week and then some reader Q&A
0: you saying that, it makes my stomach turn a little bit, saying like, let's dive into some of your tweets, because I feel like sometimes I, I it's hard for me not to behave poorly on Twitter. But go ahead, fire away. <laughs> All
1: right. Uh, first one is, uh, it's a tweet that actually um, it referenced Cliff, a- uh, Cliff Asnis, where he was rebuffing a Bloomberg article called The Death of Value Investing. So the article claims that value isn't working, it says sticking to that approach has resulted in a cumulative loss Fifteen percent over the past decade, according to Goldman Sachs, uh, during the, roughly the same period, the S and P 500 was uh, nearly double. So, first, um, why has it underperformed so much?
0: I imagine that stat is not straight up value has lost. It's probably long short or value versus growth, depending on where you pulled that that, that quote. So, it's probably it's definitely underperformed the market cap. But almost everything is underperformed market cap weighted in this cycle which is normal and it's fine. I mean, it is so much of what goes on in investing is, is the ebb and flow, the waxing and waning of styles and countries and sectors and strategies. And that's just kind of the way that it is. You know, things go in and out of fashion. You have times when market cap is crushing everything else and the U.S. is crushing other countries. You have times when Greece is outperforming like this year. So it's, it's a lot of these things are... You know, you see it on Managed Futures every five years. Managed Futures is dead. Trend following is dead. And then fast forward another five, you know, years after everyone's rushed in and it's been an unbelievable performer. You know, it's, it's same, same story.
1: Well, one of the things the article is trying to claim, it's got a chart which we'll post. And it draws a smooth line over uh, the course of, I guess it's since 1930. And the line basically follows a, a consistent progression. And apparently, we've truly broken this since around, looks like around 2010 or so. So, I mean, do you see this as potential, based upon what you just said, is this where mean reversion is going to mean that we're way undervalued right now in terms of values of factor and it's come roaring back? Or do you think something can potentially actually change from a structural perspective? And it is. You know, broken.
0: Well, who knows? I mean, look, you have like the late late nineties, for example, and that's a classic example of you know things continuing longer than people expect, and and in many cases, and I don't think we're in a bubble, but when when bubbles get into late stages, is when can a lot a lot of people can make a lot of money, you know, and so it could continue on for a couple years, but that's that's the way that works. I mean, our friend Wes talked about it as the value pain train, and we often use cite the example of. You know Warren Buffett's 13F holdings underperforming eight of the last 10 years. And, but these things happen, and that's just kind of the way that it goes. And it's not just value. It's tactical. You know, it's you, everything you hear in the, the news today about active versus passive and all the flows going into passive and passive crush. Th- these things have a way of coming in and out of favor. I mean, in general, you still want to make smart bets and, and investment approaches that are kind of tried and true as opposed to just flipping around to whatever happens to be working today.
1: We talked about flows. Is this just an example of, well, the source of uh, value being underperformed? Or let me back up. If it actually was doing well, I would assume that's because flows were chasing performance. It was doing well. Uh, Is this then what we're seeing? Basically, investors chasing the hottest factor and then sort of behaviorally, you know, they they bail at the wrong time. They buy in at the wrong time. And basically it's going to come back now because everybody's out of it.
0: You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, you kind of described the whole mean reversion concept, right? Is that, but, but you never know, you don't know if that's one month, if it's five, 10 years. And so there's, what you want to take a remember you got to take a long term view and always ask yourself has something changed and is there a reason to why we should be thinking about it differently? You know we talk a lot about dividend yields and dividend stocks and and shareholder yield and that's a case where things have changed. But in general, value as a concept, no, of course not. Now every bull and bear market has different personalities and uh, you know it's it's same old same old stuff.
1: Okay. Well, keeping on the topic of factors then, uh, you just tweeted about a New York Times article in which Burt Malkiel reversed his stance on passive versus active investing, uh, now generally believing that uh, active investing can exploit certain market inefficiencies. Now, it's kind of ironic that this comes when he's backing Wealthfront's new uh, advanced indexing service, which is a form of smart beta. So it's not really my main question. But first, I'm curious whether you see this purely as a marketing move or...
0: Look, or I, mean, I I think Burton Malkiel, Malkiel is a national treasure. I mean, I think he's, he's one of the legends of investing. His books, I think, are excellent. I, I think you always need to separate people from kind of what they're saying and what they do. You know, Burton's been on the board and chairman and, and investment advisors of like... He's like... It's like 20 or some companies. I mean... I remember one's like an an active emerging market fund that charges two percent a year, right? So it's 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 kind of you know what you say and what you promote necessarily like what what you do. So I've always just kind of smiled when I hear Burton in the press talking about these things, and 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 Wealthfront being one where he's been kind of the CIO of it, and they've kind of been famous critics of Smart Beta. But you know, look, I, I applaud them from saying, hey we think there's potentially a better way than market cap weighted indexing, you know? And so I think it's a smart move what they're doing and I, I don't have any problem with it, but you know, it's kind of funny when you, when you see people, Silicon Valley loves to pivot and, and it's a good thing in general, you're doing something wrong. You pivot. Great. You know, you change what, we, we we I think that's a wonderful thing say look you know when you're doing something wrong you improve that's the foundation for becoming a better person becoming a better investor right as you change but it's kind of funny that it it depending on how you proj- project yourself prior so if you're philosophically you know very opposed to something and then change your mind like silicon valley calls it a pivot probably the rest of the country calls it just being full shit you know depending on how you go about it so if you're like you know, picking fights with people and saying how this is a terrible way to invest. And then you kind of pivot to it. Like, is it because you're trying to find a better market fit and something to distinguish yourself from the competition or do you really believe it? And so a lot of these cases, you know, look, I, I'm, I think it's a good improvement. I think it's a smart thing to do. I think the evidence says you could, you should probably move away from market cap weighting. Like I have no problem with that, but it's, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, we're from the south. Southern preacher being like, "You should never drink. You, you people are going to hell." You should, you're not, Then then says, "Oh, you know what? A, a glass or two of wine every weekend's fine." And you know, like it just, it, it just kind of has a weird feeling to it. So I, I just kind of laugh. You know, I, it's it's a humorous article, and but but I think I actually think it's the step in the right direction. I think they're making a smart move. I mean, they are still using high dividend yield as a factor, which we've talked about in the past. An article we did, which is. You Should basically never own high dividend yielding stocks in a taxable account. Um, we can talk about that later, but but there's still still quibbles I have. But the, the, the whole thing about these robos, the top four, by the way, they just announced that Vanguard is now up to 65 billion in assets, so that's bigger than the, the next three combined. And they're a bit of a cyborg, so they come with a financial advisor. But Schwab is second at like 20 some billion, and then Betterment and Wealthfront, they're all good choices. I think they're totally reasonable choices. Now, I my philosophical leanings, and you know, obviously I'm biased because we run a, a digital advisor. Is that you know something like the way we do it, or West at Alpha Architect, the way they do it, which is a little more tactical with some trend following inputs? I think is a better solution. But I think all four of those are just fine. I think they're all good solutions
1: makes me think of uh, your idea that somebody tracks the various robos. Yeah,
0: there's a good website. Someone, <laughs> Somebody listening should do it. You should come up with 10 default portfolios for each of the robos because none of them report performance for some unknown reason. Set up a robo-tracker website, and every journalist on the planet will subscribe to your website. I don't think it will make any money. But...
1: So the the curious thing to me about that article with Malkiel was actually a couple quotes from Rob Arnott. Um, One, he said that pretty much everyone is looking at the same factors, which is a danger. He added it's a very crowded space. If 10,000 quants are all looking at the same data and trading on it, the chances are it's not going to work. So, I mean, it kind of makes me wonder. Investing now is different than, call it, you know, 30 years ago because it seems like there is a lot more market scrutiny of all sorts of factors and whatnot. And the one that sort of persists, the, the time... It's really the behavioral element how do you not react what do you think is the best way to capture the behavioral side is it trend following well I mean, so, it- so
0: rob um has been he's been talking a lot they've been doing a lot of research at, at research affiliates about uh factor timing you know and so that's been a very big uh topic discussion over the past year or two with a lot of people following on different sides of it can you time factors and meaning say a factor like for example price to book or dividend yield. You know, that historically, let's say it adds 1% to 2% performance over market cap weighting, but there's times when, because of money rushing in, and dividend yield is a good example. So, 1999 dividend yield, high dividend yielding stocks traded at 50% valuation discount the over market, overall market, and on average is 20% over time. Now, it's a premium over the past few years for the first time ever. So, a common sense person would say, well, okay... It makes a lot more sense to allocate to high dividend yielders in 99 when they're a huge valuation discount, and it makes no sense now. And so theoretically, I I really want to believe that factor timing is possible from a common sense standpoint. And research has shown, research that shows if you sort factors based on, I think it's their last three or five or something, your performance, um, excuse me, in valuations that there you can there's additive performance by tilting away from you know the, the the high valuation and the ones that have done the best so they have a beautiful new website by the way if you go to research affiliates asset allocation module that lets you look at a lot of these factors and compare the current basket to history and is that current basket expensive or cheap right so you have a factor like momentum you say oh wow it's it's falling in the top decile of most expensive or under you know really cheap right now and so maybe it makes more sense to owning that and so
1: is, is that valuation component is that relative to itself or is there yeah, more of an absolute um
0: uh, it's it's that's a good question i'm trying to remember um i think it's i can't I'm, I'm blanking i can't remember if it's relative if it's relative to its own history or relative to the current market i don't know go check it out okay well
1: <laughs> but but tying back to the i mean that was in an i forgot the question what was that the was an answer question? based on factors you know, what I was wondering is, what do you think of when you're trying to exploit uh, the behavioral biases we have? Is it trend following to sort of go with what the direction is, what the behavior, what the sentiment is, regardless of factors such as you name it and just sort of go with the bias? There's, there's, there's a
0: couple of different ap- approaches as far as implementation. So first is, look, I'm going to put together a portfolio of these factors and that's that. They'll balance out over time. So I'm going to own some value. I'm going to own some momentum, rebalance once a year, whatever. Okay? That's one. Two is that trend following certainly works, and it's a different approach, right? And You don't consider that a factor, do you? Right. But so no, no. Trend following, no. It's like an overlay. It's, a, it's an active management overlay on anything. So you could overlay yeah. trend following on corn prices or gold or the Swiss franc or Bitcoin, Right um you could overlay trend following on dividend stocks so you're applying a active management approach to a factor based approach mm-hmm. um, and i think it it works great over time and philosophically speaking lines up but if you're looking at a lot of these factors you know we're talking a little more about mean reversion where if a factor has done really well over the past xyz years that maybe it's time to be moving away so rebalancing is certainly one solution as is potentially what Rob had talked about in our podcast, this is over rebalancing, meaning if, and this, here's a good example. So if you're doing factors with global valuation of countries or something where you say, all right, well, this cheap basket of countries is in the cheapest it's ever been. Maybe it makes sense. Instead of just rebalancing, rebalancing a little more. So if that's 10% of my portfolio, instead of rebalancing back from eight to 10, we actually rebalance up to 12 or 15 or something. So it's just kind of turning the dial a little bit more. But again, you know, all this stuff plays out and it's simple to look at because I'd been thinking for a long time, what is going to be the bubble or the, the tell of this market cycle? So late 90s internet stocks and a lot of other tech, right? Super expensive. Not the case now. Tech stocks, totally reasonable compared to their history and, and the market. You know, 2007 was a lot of uh, leverage and credit as well as real estate. This market cycle, I had often scratched my head. You see little mini bubbles like Toronto real estate, where Pitbull and Tony Robbins are speaking at conference, pumping Toronto real estate, right? But you're starting to see a lot of bubble-like behavior with cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people have no business ever getting involved. in the stories, like the, the story of... This man put in $1,000 and now he's a millionaire.
1: I think I saw Ethereum is up 4,000% this year.
0: And then there was some like flash crash where it went down to 13 yesterday. Like so like like it's it's drawing in people now. This does not mean again like if you would compare it to something like Nasdaq late 90s is this 96 with cryptocurrencies or is this 99?
1: Well, but to what extent, I mean, this is a small pocket. You're talking about cryptocurrencies, and you were but asking we a, a moment ago, what's going to sort of burst this market? Cryptocurrencies don't have that much control over the broader no, market. No,
0: no, no, no. They're, they're an afterthought. But I'm just saying, you start to see bubble-like behavior in areas, and usually it involves leverage or credit or just people being somewhat foolish. And a lot of the cryptocurrency stuff goes on outside the U.S., by the way. It's not necessarily on a day-to-day basis, I mean... We go to lunch or dinner tonight. I can't pay with Bitcoin, San Fran. You probably could. That's about. That's about it. Anyway, uh, so yeah. I mean, but but the whole point is that if you look at the history of investing, is all of this stuff just ebbs and flows, and you see the same stuff over and over again. And, and the media is particularly wonderful about usually getting it wrong on time frames where you know when when they're t- when they're calling for the death of a, a particular style, it's usually an interesting time to be interesting. Yeah. And vice versa.
1: Okay. Well, another quote from Arnott in that same article, uh, he says, "Smart beta can be smart, and then it can uh, be not so smart." There are tons of strategies being offered now based on nothing but backtests. Anyone can create a brilliant strategy with the benefit of hindsight. Does that mean anything for future returns? I'm curious. Bring this up because you know a lot of what we do in houses, we look at things from a backtest perspective. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on how to distinguish between accurate, effective back tests with integrity versus those that are manicured or contrived or whatnot.
0: You know, I, I think the biggest benefit of back testing is simply it's like reading about history. So understanding what markets have done in the past. And if you just relied on back tests and, and didn't use any sort of um, common sense, one thing would be all right well you should never invest in China or Russia or Argentina or Egypt or Japan because at one point they've essentially lost the entire equity market. So you should never invest in that. Like th- that would be a weird sort of takeaway, right? Mm-hmm. But in general, it's it's just like have a respect for history and understand what's possible and and what, you know, can happen. You know, most young investors, if you were to tell them, you know, the United States government actually confiscated people's gold, made people turn it in 100 years ago, almost. Can you imagine the U.S. government doing that? i say, you're kidding me, right? You know, that's that's crazy. Uh, Or if you said, you know, the U.S. market has dropped by over 80% before. And commodities and REITs in the last bear market dropped by over 70%. All these sort of takeaways, it's like, it actually probably makes you a lot more... Backtest in general, on in in a a healthy respect for history, gives you probably a lot more conservatism and a lot more respect for what can and does happen. So, but if you flip that and say the people that are backtesting equity strategies to 2000 that are saying, "Hey, look, this trade on Thursday, buy on Monday strategy, you know, has worked and beaten the S and P by 10 percentage points a year since 2000." Like that, that doesn't really check the box to me. So, to me, it's as learn as much history as possible, understand as much as possible what has happened and why, and then just put, put on a little common sense.
1: Okay. Yeah, I hear you on that. But I think I and was... here's
0: a good example. Here's a good example. So, let's say you're a trend follower and you say, you know what? I love the 200 day moving average, it's a great strategy. And you look at it just back to 1999. Well, trend following has worked incredible since 99 because it missed two huge bear markets for the most part, right? But then you take it back to the 80s and you understand, oh, okay, well, actually, it, depending on the trend following metric you used, it would have either sat in or out the 1987 crash. And that's a pretty big binary event. You either woke up that day or that month and were up or down 20%, you know, depending. But had you not back-tested, you wouldn't really have that sort of understanding. And then, and so there's so much that, you know, going back to the original comment about, you know, Cliff Asnis at AQR says, you know, you take a lot of these back-tests and going forward, he's like, I like to take the drawdown and double it. Mm-hmm. And, and we have the, the concept that your largest, and, and it's factual, the largest drawdown is always in the future. And this, this, this is why a lot of people are surprised about 2008. You know, a lot of the endowment-style models, a lot of people had a buy-and-hold model that was globally diversified, and the the largest drawdown going into that was probably 20%-ish, and it doubled. You know, an endowment-style portfolio pro- probably had a drawdown of 50%. You know, Harvard endowment, if it was mark-to-market on a monthly basis, would have lost half. You know, you having a healthy respect for history, but also understand that, you know, things can go wrong and do and that there's worse cases and understanding why your back test may be overstated or, or may not work as well in the future. I mean, look at price to book as an example, as a factor, the most famous probably value factor that's been around for decades. And then has had countless funds and strategies that have been based on price to book. You know DFA, original pioneer, and they're four hundred billion, but because so much money has moved into it, it's been one of the worst factors since then. So we like to apply a little common sense and and generally kind of understand. I mean, we had a we had a guy email us the other day and said, you know, hey, Meb, I was curious looking at this strategy that they just launched five months ago. I'm wondering why it's underperforming. And I said, are Are you serious? Like this could go years underperforming. Um, but you know, unless you, you know, there's a big education gap, I think too, which is tough.
1: But to to what extent though, I guess, what's the biggest mistake when backtesting, I think of like survivorship bias, but are there some other sort of obvious egregious mistakes that you can avoid?
0: Well, there's a lot of like really bad one-on-one mistakes that I I actually don't like even count. So I don't even count survivor bias because that's so egregious that, and survivor bias listeners, that's like, for example, if you were... Looking at historical stock performance, but excluding stocks that no longer exist, that would be give you a very inaccurate historical backtest. And it's actually surprising how many of these research websites that I've used in the past do things like don't include dividends or don't include delisted companies. And so people used to send me backtests or talk about that say, look, this. no offense, but this is worthless. You're yeah. excluding. It's, it's not even remotely close to reality. And are saying, look at mutual funds that only exist today. So
1: if we have listeners who are looking for um, more of a pure data set, where would they find it?
0: It depends on what they want to do. If they're just looking at asset classes, that's pretty easy. We have some tabs on our website. If you search historically like free data sources. So French Fama has stock data on a monthly level for asset classes and countries and styles going back to like the twenties. But if you're looking at individual stock basis and wanting to do back tests, I mean, there's a number of websites that'll let you and and back test. I mean, if you had access to a business school fact set, which will otherwise cost you like 50 or hundred grand or something. Uh, but there's a lot of websites and we mentioned them on our, our blog many times in the past. If you search like tactical back testers or something, there's a lot, there's a lot of ones that'll do it. There's much, there's never been a greater time in history that has m- more access to the data than, than now. So that's like a one-on-one, like I don't even count that as a mistake because th- that's just like a do not even get to go starting point sort of mistake. Um but, but a typical mistake would be something like you know you're looking at a hundred factors and then optimizing the best ten over the last ten years and expecting that to continue. You know that that's that's a short time frame, considering that there's styles that go in and out of favor for an entire decade or more. You know, and, and again, like going back to that old comment about everyone having the same data set, I agree with that. Everyone, you know, I mean, I, I had, I was making this comment in the mid 2000s, interviewing at a quant hedge fund. You go type up on Yahoo Finance, which rest in peace, by the way, I, I don't even know that they're supporting it anymore. Type in a ticker symbol and see who owns it. And it's five of the most famous quant funds. You know, it'd be like D.E. Shaw, L.S.V., AQR. You know, so they, they kind of all arrived at the same conclusion. Uh, but so, but there's certainly if you're, if you're a quant um, and there's a great podcast that Patrick O'Shaughnessy did with um, the CEO and founder of Estimize a few uh, weeks ago that talks about this. And it says, you know, a lot of these quant shops, you know, the new value adds become finding new factors, new data sets mm-hmm. and finding ways that, that people either you have data that no one else has, or you look at the data differently. But the flip side of that if you're an individual investor like my god how am i going to compete with that there's another quote from josh brown he's like the the alpha is to do the opposite and to be as dumb as possible and to take a step back and operate at a totally different time frame where you know you're not necessarily doing high frequency trading or you know trading uh the ultimate quant quant stock factor model in the us maybe you're applying it to malaysian securities or frontier markets or Private equity companies, you know, there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat.
1: I remember reading some quote that basically arrived at the conclusion that the greatest alpha that retail has is just time frame, uh, just long term. You know, we are not competing like uh, asset managers, short term needing performance to keep your job. Uh, so if you're willing just to be patient and stick with your strategy and have a longer term perspective, I love
0: your- the I love the coffee can strategy portfolios, which is people that have bought stocks and then just put them away. And I actually think that's a great way to buy a portfolio. We we talked about this in a prior episode where I said you could buy an investment and never sell it. So it has to stay there no matter what. So these people that end up owning, you know, GE for 40 years or or Reynolds Tobacco or or whatever it may have been that have these just, you know, you you read the story about the janitor that just Uh, left $4,000 or $4 million to local Audubon society because he owned stocks that he just... Never sold. Yeah, a million um, stories like that. Yeah, and it's great. Um, and I think that's a totally reasonable way to invest. All
1: right, well, why don't we hop into some uh reader QA questions then? Um, this actually is appropriate because you were talking on market cap, uh you touched on market cap a few times earlier. The question is uh Meb has suggested several times that almost anything, uh any systematic index selection method uh is better than a cap weighted index. So why is so much of the index fund industry stayed with market uh, cap weighting? What has Meb seen that others are not? So So
0: market cap weighting is the market. And so if you put together all the other strategies, you end up with market cap weighting. And let me restate that. Uh, Market cap weighting is not anything other than market cap weighting is not better. There's plenty of strategies that are way worse than market cap weighting. So investing expensive stocks is way worse than market cap weighting investing in you know kind of a lot of the opposite factors are, are way worse ways to invest in market cap weighting. Market cap weighting is totally fine. It's fine. Really? It's like it's like your parents, you know, you coming home going on a date or something or 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 saying your boyfriend or your friend, yeah, it's fine. You know, so it's like it's average, it's okay, but if you sort by almost anything else, if you sort by value, if you sort by multifactor, if you sort equal weight You know, if you just buy the top 500 stocks equal weighted instead of market cap weighted, it's going to be, it should be better. And the reason being, we've talked about this a lot, market cap weighting, no tether to value. So you end up with a lot of the biggest companies being uh, more expensive just because it's price based, Mm -hmm. it's a a momentum strategy. So it's fine, but it's not the best you could do. So I think almost any strategy that within reason that makes sense is going to be better. And we'll add, you know, 100, 200 basis points, maybe, depending on what it is, 50 to 200 basis points, depending on what it is, Um, and depending on how concentrated you get. The problem is a lot of these funds say they're doing something different, and then are basically closet indexers. We talked about this a lot, where they basically look exactly like the S&P 500. So you got to give yourself a chance, particularly if you're going to pay more than five basis points for that, because otherwise, if you're going to if you're going to market cap weight. You can pay five base points. And the reason you said, why do people do it? It's infinite scale. So you can manage $50 billion, no sweat with market cap or more. But if you're going to be different, you have to be really different. And so there's a lot of tools out there that we've mentioned in past episodes on active share. Wes has probably my favorite at alpha architect where you could type in a fund or a ticker and it'll show you just how concentrated and exposed to a factor it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there was a, podcast with bill miller of leg mason and barry ritholtz that's really really good podcast where you know the, the common phrase is that passive is like a third of the industry but bill miller said look if you include the closet indexers it's more like 70 percent." so the, the companies the funds it ended up looking exactly like the P, no matter what so you want something really concentrated and really different if you're going to pay more than the 10 basis points these low-cost beta funds charge
1: Okay. All right. so take that answer and then let's tie in one of your tweets of the week in which you referenced a chart showing the weight of the top 10 largest stocks in the S&P. And those weightings are currently near all time lows compared to historical weighting averages. So does this lend itself to the idea that uh, flaws in market cap weighting can ebb and flow in their intensity based on how much of the top stocks and in index, you know, how much they command of that index from like a weighting perspective?
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at times when market cap weighted index is particularly bubblicious, like 99, you know, you'll Times, <laughs> what that's a word, isn't it? love that word. And you also got to be careful. Obviously, the U.S. is one of the biggest markets in the world. But if you look at some small countries, you'll have one stock being one-fifth or a quarter of the index, right? So it's it can get particularly distorted in countries and sectors where... One one company is like ten or twenty or thirty percent of an index, but in the U.S. it's it's usually quite a bit more diversified, and you rarely see a company. It's something like the four percent rule. If you see a company pop its head above four percent in the U.S., it's like it's like the Madden jinx, you know, like where the the Madden video game. If you're on the cover, it's like you're gonna get hurt the next year. It's like if you're a company and you hit this four percent in the U.S. historically. It's like your your stock is about to get taken to the woodshed.
1: Who was it we had on who was discussing that? And Apple had crushed the th- I think the it was old.
0: Ramsey from Luthold. Yeah. I could be wrong. But, I mean, th- there's no reason for that to be a hard and fast rule. Other than just market cap in general is tough because of the creative destruction. When you're making a ton of money and you're one of the biggest companies in the U.S. and you're successful with high profit margins, like, someone else wants that, too. So... One one of my favorite takeaways of markets in general is the super high, you know, turnover. Like so, the, if you look at the top ten companies each decade, you know, it's a different list almost every time, and the, and the attrition rate of companies is so high, where there's so much turnover of companies dying and failing, and it's the same way with dynastic wealth for people. So the the you know the the Rothschilds of the world are probably huge outliers versus so many families you know or companies that have high wealth and it goes away. I I was reading a stat somewhere. I took a picture on my phone where it said something like 90% of high net worth families you know it it over the next generation it ends up not sustaining. That seems high to me, but anyway. Mm-hmm. So but same thing with companies, you know, but but that's a beautiful part about capitalism and that's the way that it should be.
1: Well, do you think that's based upon... Is that on an individual company level? And they can be fantastic or terrible all on themselves? Or do you think this is based upon industries that go in and out of favor?
0: Well, I mean, think like classic examples, buggy whips. You yeah. know, so it, it changes. And 50 years from now, we'll probably be talking about the industry of, you know, augmented reality stocks. Well, I mean, or that, two years <laughs> from now, we got marijuana index that's stocks. The, that's kind of where I was
1: going was um, thinking about the... Potential exponential growth in tech that's ahead of us in the next decade, two decades. You know, to what degree, when you're looking at, um, it's a smaller sub sub segment of the market, but when you're looking at like U.S. stocks, if you're not going to go straight value play, to what degree would you want to say, all right, I want to really hone in on tech, on uh, sort of cutting edge.
0: I got one word for you, Jeff: plastics. You know, so like each generation, I mean if you think back to all the revolutionary technology and ideas, I mean, think about radio and TV and space flight and plastics and everything else. I mean, what will it will be 10, 20, 30 years from now, who knows? Um but thematic is tough because thematic, I mean, if you if you were to ask the listeners, listeners, what do you think the best performing sector of all time is? You're listening, or actually it's industry, it's not a sector. There's only about ten sectors, but Hundred and some industries. It's tobacco, right? The most boring non-tech industry of all time, but uh, it's it's trounced everything else. So, you know, from a, from an investment standpoint, people love thematics for some reason. I mean, if you look at you know a lot of these thematic ETFs like Hack or the cybersecurity that that people because it's a good story and it's something they can kind of attach to. But as we all know. There's a massive difference between a stock and or a sector, sorry, a business and sector and a stock. So, you know, a stock, you want something that generates a ton of cash flows and is probably cheap. Uh, a company and a sector you want something totally different but people get attached to certain ideas and concepts over time and again those also wax and wane at various periods in history people want different things in late 90s it was tech and mid 2000s it was commodity and, and real estate and dividend stocks and this cycle it you know it's something different yada yada on and on
1: why haven't you launched a vice fund you know tobacco I, it, alcohol
0: Because in in general, I don't think that thematic investments are a good idea. You know, so. Tobacco
1: is the best performing industry of all time. Right.
0: And in hindsight, I mean, so one is that if you, and again, those are industries, so they're small by definition, um, and it's fun and it's interesting to give people that choice, but it's not the best investment approach. Right. Why would you limit yourself just to one sector or industry? But as a part of a whole portfolio, and then say, well, would you market cap weight the tech the tobacco sector? Or would you use a multi-factor value composite? You know, all these things. But 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 in investing, you want as much breadth as possible. You want to be able to choose from two, five, ten thousand securities. Because it gives you a much bigger universe, but 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 thematic. Look, if you want to play around with, well, five percent your that, portfolio. That, that,
1: that's assuming though that I mean you're taking those decisions out of your investor's by way, hands. By the way, the, let the let, how about having you know, sort of concentration and then let them diversify throughout their broader portfolio.
0: By the way, the multi-factor um, approach probably would have selected a lot of tech, uh, tobacco stocks. So by default, you end up owning a bunch. But look, if people want to play around with thematic trading, by cryptocurrencies and do it with a small percentage of portfolio, fine with me. Or in your case, option trade.
1: I love my options. By the way, I don't know if you saw it. Um, speaking of tobacco and alcohol, George Clooney, uh, they sold Casamigos today for 700 million, By the way, potentially 1 billion. with uh, this,
0: this is an article I would like to write with you. And we talk about, I thought about this when I saw that, is we talk a lot about the huge difference between, building wealth to so getting rich and staying rich. And so we often say asset allocation, a lot of stuff we talk about in this podcast is in the later bucket. It is about staying rich and building wealth and getting rich usually requires some form of uh, concentration. So it's starting a business or having a highly concentrated investment or something like that.
1: buying Bitcoin and Ethereum.
0: You could, I mean, theoretically you could, you know, live the janitor where you live a lifetime, save and invest. And eventually you'll get wealthy. But, but if you're looking for, say, you know, a a kind of an exponential or more shortened timeframe, um, how to build wealth, it's owning a company or owning the cash flows, right. Mm -hmm. Or building it or concentration. So I think a really fun article is say, let's look at the top, you know, 20 producing celebrities or entertainers, right. And say of their net worth, how much of it was from their art and how much of it was from the business. So, I mean, I can just name 10 offhand. So P Diddy, uh, Sean Combs just sold part of his clothing line for, I think hundreds of billions. Dre made a ton of his money off, not his records, but, but the Beats Mm -hmm. partnership 50 cent with vitamin water. What's his name? Paul Mitchell, the hair guy made more money off uh, his tequila brand. What was his? His was... um. It's a really famous one. It might even be Don Julio. I can't remember. But so, really famous entrepreneur and probably made good money off shampoo. But he was like, I made way more money off tequila than hair products. Mm-hmm. So, so many of the examples. And a classic example, of course, is, is athletes with endorsements. You know, so the, their brand can... they And a lot of people are learning this. Their brand, they parlay into business. So they become I mean Kim Kardashian sex tape but she made probably most of her money off of her uh, app game does some some ridiculous amount of revenue I mean
1: stallback real estate
0: really mm-hmm. um, for for the listeners under 40 uh, Jeff is talking about an old football player <laughs> but 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 it's probably a it would be a really fun article and, and it's a really interesting takeaway and, and I think it says a lot about brand but also says a lot about uh, business and you really want to be owning businesses and being a part of. I mean, Dan Aykroyd, he's got a, he had a pretty so famous I mean, vodka.
1: All right, so this brings up an interesting point: is you know we talk about sort of traditional asset allocation. To what extent should a younger investor be specifically designating a larger than usual percentage of their portfolio to go into private placements or something that can really uh, significantly? Uh, increase your portfolio versus just a you know the oracles of the world i I
0: think you can do that but and so you're saying kind of don't limit your universe to just public companies and so here's the challenge on a couple a couple things i have a number of comments one is that you know think about owning amazon which is one of the best performing stocks but public and you've had multiple 50 percent drawdowns and we just wrote an article talking about it had a I think a 90% drawdown in the tech bubble. So you, despite owning one of the best performing stocks of all time, you had to sit through 50 to 90% losses. And how many people can do that? Very little. So private, the benefit of private, either being involved as a founding employee or investor is usually you're kind of locked up. So you can't trade it if, even if you wanted to, and it's not marked to market. So you may get an update once a year or every three, five years. And I think that's a really interesting area. And so, we, um, going back to an area I'd actually never heard of that was really interesting to me was uh, this concept of search funds. And so Patrick, we mentioned him again on Invest for the Best, he did a couple of interviews with some Harvard professors, and there's a handful, there's about half a dozen schools where they'll teach, at even it's undergrad or MBA, younger investors, but plenty are in their 30s and 40s now, basically how to search for a local or national business. So something like a cleaner company or a company that supplies you know, um, makes bread in Vermont that trades for four times earnings that you could come into and, you know, potentially grow or modernize and make a very healthy return on investment. So there's a number of ways to do that on top of, I mean, I'm a classic example. You know, my net worth is 90% dominated by Cambria. But it's you know a company that have built concentrated wealth in the sense that it's you know been doing it for a decade and, and everything else. It's and, gonna
1: be weird when I take over your position and boot you. And
0: and uh, the the Uber, what's that guy's name? Just got booted. They, uh, like yeah. they have like top six of the executive that is unfilled at that point. I'm a, I'm a Lyft shareholder, so I'm I'm happy to hear this. <laughs> this isn't to say that you can't grow wealth with a diversified portfolio but by definition diversified portfolio in general is meant to keep up with inflation and and grow it some but the whole the whole key there is super long time period so if you're 20 you can utilize that long time period compound at five percent real and eventually get wealthy Mm -hmm. but if you're looking for more kind of an outsized exponential get rich then it's it's owning some some sort of business, and a lot of people have done it in real estate too, you know. But that's the same sort of concept where you're you're buying into apartments or buildings that then you're leasing out and renting and getting cash flows. So, to,
1: to what degree do you think most investors don't fully grasp that that they get in the market and they think that? No, this I, think, is I think a lot. lot
0: of- I think a lot, and so you know, because you're seduced by the high return numbers. I mean, I'm going to think about it in high school the just the compounding. If you just start with a hundred dollars. By the time you're 50, you will have 10 million dollars. You know, type of chart, and you're like, "Whoa!" If I just do that, and and that's true. You know, I mean, it's the 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 numbers don't lie. But they say, "All right, well, picture half of this going away three times." You know, and so there was a there was an investment book, and I'm I'm gonna blank on who the name was, where he advocated. He said, "Look, actually, if you're a young person, the correct investment is a two times leverage version of stocks," and on paper. That probably is the best investment. But you'll have to sit through potentially losing 99% of your money at some point. And most people can't because most people can't. It's just too hard. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not it's not anyway. So um, but I think we should update that. I think that'd be a fun article to write on and and a side article to write would be also it'd be like how to grow money, how the best celebrities and entertainers have built wealth. And also the aside is how many have imploded it because so many are so <laughs> – I mean, there, there was an ESPN 30 for 30 on a laundry list of entertainers that have made tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars and are bankrupt. Yeah. You know, Mike Tyson, Alan Iverson, there's, there's like a gazillion – And it's because people extrapolate, you know, certainly how much money they have indefinitely into the future.
1: There's also a lot of bad advisors who get them into things like, um, what was it? There's something Very
0: predatory, too.
1: Yeah. Well, you always have your harem who's sort of surrounding you, just leeching off you until the money dries up. But You
0: you read about so many. I mean, I was reading Tim Duncan. People always get in the press, like, you know, suing their advisor for putting them into a solar panel deal in, you know, Wyoming. And meanwhile, they got paid 5% to put you in the deal and it's just the vast majority of like i'm surprised the nfl all the major sports nhl baseball and everything it says you know what and they probably have this so i i don't know we're setting up a deferred you're, you're gonna have a, if i if i was a robo-advisor listening to this i would say we're gonna go pitch all these sports you know leagues and say you sign up you're gonna get an automated investing solution for 25 basis points but you're gonna you know what they need? They need the forever fund. You're going to get locked up, and you can't spend this. My favorite is what's his, uh was it Bobby Bonilla who when he negotiated his contract says, no, "No, no, I don't want a huge upfront payment, but you're going to pay me a million dollars for the rest of my life." So the Mets have to pay him still. It's like a million dollars for forever, I think, <laughs> which is a brilliant move because yeah. you know. Anyway. We're just we're just ranting at this point.
1: <laughs> I do want to write the article with you about uh, sort of entrepreneurial, start your own business type activities. I mean, I think that's that is the way to real wealth far far faster. And I think so many investors get it wrong. It's a lot
0: of work too, but like you mentioned, also investing in private companies. So a classic example is arguably the best performing um, venture fund of all time, which was Chris Sacca's uh, Lowercase Capital, where. He was an early investor in Uber and Twitter. And it's fun to read his history because, you know, he had times before that where essentially highly leveraged, you know, kind of almost went broke sort of things a couple times in debt. But and I feel like there's a thousand stories where the opposite of people did try to do what Chris Saka did and went to zero, right? Mm -hmm. Lost all their money, but highly um, concentrated, highly uh, knowledgeable. And Buffett talked a lot about a lot about this. You know, instead of putting all your eggs in a basket, pick a couple of eggs and watch that basket where if you can pick private companies and do an enormous amount of research and have more either information or a better understanding or whatever, and concentrate in those companies, that's an awesome way to build wealth. But it's a ton of work and it's, you know, it's hugely different outcomes. Like it's, it's, it's concentrated. It's tough. It's hard.
1: I mean, that'd be an interesting show is what's the appropriate due diligence required for um, researching private companies? How do you really know? I think that's a world a lot of people don't really know much about.
0: No, it's hard. And read, um, Check out Patrick's episode for the search funds. And then the, the Harvard guys put out a book. We'll put it in the show notes on uh, basically how to do search funds. And there's actually like a dozen funds that invest in these young entrepreneurs. So they're search fund funds. Or you could actually invest in a search fund that will invest in a diversified group of these young guys. The problem with those, though, is they don't have any potential liquidity, really. So if you like buy a bread company in Vermont, like who are you going to sell that into in five years? Same sort of thing. Well, also,
1: if it's a fund of funds, you're not necessarily getting the concentration risk that you need.
0: So it's good in that way. <laughs> so so it's, well, well, because these are targeting. High, so yes and no. Um. Anyway, let's move on.
1: All right. Whatever. All right. Next reader question. Um, I still can't wrap my head around how to use commodities in a portfolio. The Ivy portfolio promotes putting 20% in a broad commodity index. But in the podcast, I've heard you discuss the uh, financialization of commodities futures leading to loss of roll yield. So what's the answer here? Include commodities as an inflation hedge, but be prepared to pay the price of long-term drag or forget about commodities and just focus on stocks, bonds, real estate.
0: You know, we, we've long been promoted to commodities. Uh, the general mood on commodities certainly gets pretty extreme at times. Mid-2000s, oil 150. You know, every institution endowment on the planet loved commodities.
1: Do you have any current thoughts on oil right now? Hold on.
0: And <laughs> now, like, you see all the institutions divesting commodities. Harvard's now selling all their goats in New Zealand. You know, it, 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 it goes through same sort of thing we talked about earlier. Ebbs and, ebbs and flows. On commodities in general you know i think a long only approach is fine i think a long short or long flat approach is also fine uh i think you know ray dalio largest hedge fund in the world often says we talked about in a prior episode if you don't own gold you understand neither history nor economics and i think in his allocation he proposed owning like 15 percent in gold or something anyway so implementation is well there was the first generation commodity indices which weren't necessarily optimal so they didn't take into account roll yield and all these other things so uh, most commodity investments happen through futures so listeners um you can think about uh you buy a commodity contract futures contracts that say expire quarterly out into the future and depending on demand You could have a situation where they're either in backwardation, which is the future commodity prices are lower than the current contract or contango, which is they're higher. And so if you buy them in certain ways, that roll yield is either positive or negative in your favor. And historically, a lot of the critics say, well, look, the roll yield historically was in your favor, but now over time, it's different or changes. And uh, that's partially true because money has come in, but also you can des- devise indices that will take advantage of that instead of being just kind of dumb. So there's all these new 2.0 versions of commodity funds and indices that have better or more optimal role strategies that I think helps. Uh, but, but in general, I mean, commodities is something that you, you really kind of need to see unexpected or just inflation in general. That That's where they shine uh, particularly gold, you know, those type of environments. So I, I see it as a diversified part of the portfolio how much, you know, that's kind of up to you. Our Canadian listeners probably have a lot more or Aussie listeners have a lot more. But uh, I definitely think it's a it's a reasonable portion.
1: Do you do any research personally into, I mean, back to the idea of oil and it's plunging right now, do you follow oil or gold or anything else with more um, specific interest?
0: I, you know, it's it's often very commodity specific. So, you know, we know we did man some old posts where we looked at a lot of economic factors on asset classes and you know, gold, for example, it's widely known that it uh loves negative real interest rates. You know, that that's when gold particularly does great. Um where inflation is higher than current interest rates. Trend falling works great, of course. You know, we we showed that many times in the past on gold and other commodities, but you know it you know the the market for weed is going to look totally different than the market from cotton which looks different you know there's there's so much and there's also no insider trading remember like commodity if you're cargo or you're one of these huge um producers you definitely have more information than everyone else does and so trying to predict fundamentals based i think would be really tough in commodities and oil there's a great there's a great god I, i'm going to blank on this quote Man, it's so good too. We'll, we'll we'll try to post the show notes while while, while you um, talk about the next question. I'll see if I can find it. But it's basically Exxon CEO or ex CEO talking about oil prices and basically how it's like impossible to, to forecast hmm. uh, oil prices. Exxon CEO. We'll see if I find anything. But um, but it's tough. I mean, you know, and the beauty of commodities too is um, you have so much of this. It's supplying to it's like econ 101. You know, the, the the cure for high oil prices, high oil prices, where all of a sudden you have these new technologies come on and all of a sudden, you know, people extrapolate in the future where oil prices were going up to a thousand and yada yada, we're running out of oil. Well, guess what? People say, damn, I can make a lot of money with oil at a hundred bucks, and they invent fracking and all of a sudden that gas gets hugely competitive and uh wind and solar you know so all of these things happen. science kind of takes over which is great and that's that's yeah, the way that free market economics free market
1: all right uh next question please explain the difference uh, between the unadvised practice of performance chasing and the highly encouraged practice of momentum investing
0: i i think there's a pretty key difference and that is Performance chasing has no rules-based approach. So usually people's performance chasing, they find a hot sector, they buy it. So they have one, usually no buy methodology other than their neighbor or what they read in the newspaper. But more importantly, way more importantly, is they have no sell methodology. So usually they sell it when it goes down by 50% or something. right? So momentum, at least you have buy and sell rules. It doesn't mean it always works, but you have rules to take advantage of Uh, when I, when do I get in? When do I get out? Same with trend following entry entry is one of the least, usually least helpful, but novice traders most interested in entry. I want to pick the top. I want to buy the bottom, but then they have no exit. They like, they don't have a process for selling and that's way more important. I mean, I've seen research that shows you can build profitable trading systems with random entries because you you have uh, certain sort of sell rules that are trend following or whatever they may be so um i think performance chasing is is you don't have a system but that could also be extrapolated to a lot of types of investing
1: one of my biggest fears with uh trend momentum is just... I, I
0: just want you to stop there what are your biggest fears jeff <laughs>
1: we don't have time for that on this show the uh just getting whipsawed around um so I'm curious to what extent, I mean, the, the 10-month SMA is is pretty well-known, pretty well-followed if you're doing trend and momentum. To what extent, though, has have you or people in the business um, back-tested tons of different time frames and decided upon the best? Why is 10 months sort of the go-to? Is there a better optimum uh, time frame to not get whipsawed
0: out? There There is a better optimal one, but problem is it won't be the most optimal in the future or unlikely to be the most optimal. So you want to try to find what you would call parameter stability. And so back in our old 06 white paper, we said 10 month moving average wasn't the best um, return to risk across any of the parameters, but, but it was in the middle. So you could certainly use three, four, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen 10, 12, 14 months and probably be just as fine. 50 day, 200 day, whatever it may be because you're still capturing the same thing. And I think it's totally reasonable to use multiple measures. So you could theoretically use you know, the 50-day, the 200-day, and the 300-day and, and scale in and out 30% each of your position. And that gives you the blended average of all of them. So it, you, you see this a lot with uh, CTAs where they use maybe like a dozen trend-following systems where one may be a range breakout, one may be a trend following, one may be so that you end up capturing the same stuff, but it's not a binary outcome. You know, if you do a trend following with just 200 day on US stocks, like we said earlier, you were either all in or all out on the 1987 crash. But maybe if you use Two, three, four, five of them. The problem for most people is it gets complex. I was about it's too to much. Say,
1: do you buy into that? Because what that makes me think of is Jason Sue's article in which he talks about the fishing lures. Yeah, where you have the the wooden one that did just as well as. Well, all. I think
0: I think the worst thing to do would be to have one and then when it stops working, switch to whichever one is working today. Yeah. So you run. But I, I think having a blended average, trading as many markets as possible, trend following is, is the whole point. So you know we've had a lot of CTAs on the podcast in the past and. You know, a lot of these guys will trade 50, 100 plus markets. So that's that's the really key um, way to diversify. So you could diversify across indicators, but you could also diversify across markets. Okay.
1: All right. Next question. Um, Potentially the last one.
0: Hopefully. We have some lunch here. We're at, we have going food. Have you What's ever had going food? Can explain what that is? It's Indian. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of, kind of seafood centric, but seafood doesn't really travel well with delivery. So... I think we got a lot more veggie and, and chicken. Are
1: you as a chef, by the way? Hmm? I feel like you've cooked once or twice and it's been pretty questionable.
0: I know. I cook a lot. And it's it's uh, I like to experiment. My way of cooking is I have – I rip out recipes or fine recipes. I'll put them in a, in a book and we'll cook them once. And then I throw them away. And so that's my method to kind of teach myself. So it's everything from roasting, baking, sous vide, frying – uh, grilling, you name it, right? And so there's a lot of experimentation.
1: Right, I'm regretting asking. And no, hold question. on, I'm almost done. And
0: so if I cook something that ends up with a recipe that's like all world, I'll save it. But I only have about five of those. And I was reviewing it the other day. One was like a bagel breakfast casserole, Ooh. where you yeah you like chop up bagels, put it into a casserole dish. Listeners, Jeff likes anything casserole or crockpot related. So if you have a crockpot recipe, yeah, send it, it in. Send it Jeff in the makes the recipes. same one every single week. I've got a couple. Um, And then the one I just made was some sort of like roasted potato with tomatoes and feta, just like basic stuff. But, you know, like going back to the sous vide, I have a new sous vide now, the Anova, which is great because you don't have to have your, your own um, dedicated sous vide machine. But I would I would say half of it comes out good. A quarter comes out amazing and a quarter is basically like inedible. Like it's really bad.
1: I must have been there. On maybe of the it's even more than, than a quarter. Like a
0: third is just kind of like. And, and my problem is I, as a chef, I'm more like my mom where it's like tablespoon and I'll just grab a handful of salt. So I'm particularly bad at baking because it, it's, it's a lot more exacting. And I made some biscuits the other day, which were just like the most. They were like bricks. All right. But the good news you've, is we have rambled a, on long enough. We have a about dog this. that likes eating leftovers, <laughs> right. so he gets a lot of snacks.
1: Let's tie this back to one last uh, market's question here. All right, I want to know your thoughts on implementing lifestyle uh, glide paths for an individual or client's portfolio. Your quant style approach uh, looks at risk a lot different than most, but I do see value in reducing portfolio risk as you come closer to withdrawing money. Question is which risk or which approach do you use to reduce the risk? Regarding your Trinity style approach, does that mean reducing from, say, a Trinity five to a Trinity three a couple years prior to retirement? Any thoughts?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, this, is, this is under category of not a strong opinion. I think it's fine. I think just adding more in bonds and fisc- fixed income as you get older, totally fine if you if you want less volatility. I mean, the the big problem there is, um, you know, a lot of people you got to include the human capital, which means, you know, are you, ret- so do you have any other sort of income? Do you have uh, social security and pension, you know, cause those are very bond like investments. So theoretically, if you have pretty cushy um, income elsewhere, you don't want to double down on more bond like income probably, you know? So there's, there's a lot of factors. And I think this is where, A number of the advisors really are helpful and you'll see the robo platforms eventually incorporate a lot of this where, you know, your situation it's very situation specific. Um, So for a lot of people in general, I think it's fine. But for some people, I I think it's it needs to be totally um, dialed in differently.
1: Who was it we had on who was discussing how we're going to live till 120 Edelman? Edelman, to what extent, I mean, did that, uh, do you buy into a lot on that? And does that change the way that you potentially see asset allocation as you're getting older? Because we're sort of operating on this false premise that we're going to be out of here at 80 to 90 when, in fact, our money needs to last another two, three decades.
0: I feel like my lifestyle and adventuring puts me in a much higher risk of the not living forever category. I feel like my, the way that I'm going to go is is Based probably on the not cooking you
1: described. That probably you not. Yeah.
0: And meanwhile, we cooked last night and got food poisoning. So FYI, uh, was I didn't get it. I, I got I've I, I don't I don't know. I you know it, it's I I think just the common sense is expect to live longer. Yeah. You know whether that's eighty, 100, 120, I don't know.
1: Well started a business get back to our entrepreneur this podcast
0: idea. is falling apart it's been too long since we've had calories uh anything else you want to call it you want to discuss risk oh um yeah we, we can we launched uh, our company launched a new offering if you've still made it this point i doubt there's four people on here um if you're an advisor and want to partner with us uh to do an automated investing solution we just launched one partner with risk we are a, a, a founding, founding is the wrong word, we are a initial launch partner with them where you can allocate to Cambria Trinity Strategies, and uh, for more information, just go to Risk lies and uh, look up their autopilot feature or email or call them or us for more info. Works. Cool. Take us out. All right. Um, I'm going to be doing some traveling. If you find yourself in San Francisco, New York, Amsterdam, Orlando, and maybe one other, I can't remember. Uh, come say hello. Uh, thanks for listening today. Feedback. Send Jeff questions at feedback at the dot show.com. You can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.